Mealtimes are a big deal in the Gospel of Luke. Open up to just about any page of this book, and you find, as one commentator puts it, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. You cannot help but notice it if you read a page or two. Jesus is always sharing a table with someone, always sitting down to eat. Often it's with the wrong sort of someone. He's having lunch at the home of a tax collector, the sort of person no one except other tax collectors cared to talk to, much less have a meal with. Or he's sitting down with a messy crowd full of people broadly labeled sinners, prostitutes and people on the margins and others not normally included in polite company. Jesus seems to have shared lots of his meals with people like that. But every once in a while, a different sort of invitation seems to make its way to Jesus. Every once in a while, he was asked to dine at the home of a religious leader. And our reading today follows one of those occasions. A leader of the Pharisees invites Jesus to a Sabbath meal at his home. And you know what? That's a pretty brave thing to do. This is, in fact, the third time that Jesus has dined at a Pharisee's house in the Gospel of Luke. And the first two times were eventful, to say the least. The first time, everything was going along fine until a woman suddenly showed up next to Jesus during the meal, knelt down, washed his feet with her tears and her hair, and anointed them with costly perfume. Those in attendance found themselves scandalized by this display of gratitude and affection and shocked out of their polite conversation. It was certainly not what the host had planned for the evening. The second time a Pharisee invited Jesus over for supper, the trouble began before the meal even started. Jesus didn't want to wash his hands. And when the host could not get over this breach of tradition, Jesus launched into one of his more vicious tirades, comparing the Pharisees to leaders with cups that were washed on the outside but filthy on the inside. Woe to you, Pharisees, he repeated several times there at the home of a Pharisee. I'm not sure if they ever actually got around to eating their soup or not. You never know what's going to happen with Jesus at your table. So when a leader of the Pharisees invites him over in our reading today, I actually think it's quite a brave move. It's a reminder to me that maybe we shouldn't simply dismiss the Pharisees as Jesus' opponents, as we often do. Sure, Jesus and the members of this group often disagree. They understand their common tradition in different ways at times. They get into heated debates. But it's possible to do all of that with more than pure antagonism. It's possible to also respect your conversation partner, to remain curious about what he or she has to say, to even maintain a sort of friendship amid strong disagreement. For all their differences, Pharisees sometimes express amazement at what Jesus is doing and teaching. Some of them try to protect Jesus, warning him to be careful when the Roman leader Herod is out to get him. And sometimes one of them even invites him over for dinner. Those sorts of relationships can be rare in our social media saturated and often polarized societies. But our reading, I think, is a reminder that they're possible. It's a dinner party with guests who don't always agree. Who knows what might happen? So Jesus watches as this group of VIPs sits down for the meal 
and he addresses two parties in turn. First, his fellow guests, and then the host. To the guests, he gives what actually sounds like a perfectly sensible and basically inoffensive etiquette lesson. At a formal meal like this one, in the Roman world of the first century, seating was a highly choreographed business. The host sat in one prescribed place, and the guests were arranged in places that marked both their social status and their relationship to the one at the center. Close associates and wealthy guests were near the host. The best food and wine were served there. And those with a more distant relationship to the hosts, or occupying a lower rung on the ladder, were at the edges. You could look around the room and know everyone's place. It was all spelled out around the table. When Jesus notices that the guests at this meal are quick to take those places of honor, he gives them what sounds like very practical advice. Take a low place to begin with, not a high one. It's much better, after all, to have the host welcome you to a higher place than knock you down to a lower one. I'm sort of imagining everybody nodding politely at this point. Maybe a few deciding it's better that they move just a few chairs down. No big deal. But then Jesus turns to his host, the one who brought this whole group together, after all, and it becomes clear that he has a whole lot more than just proper etiquette in mind. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, he says, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they might invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Okay, so now we are in very strange territory because Jesus isn't just giving advice for how to avoid embarrassment at your next meal. No, he's describing a different kind of meal altogether with a different guest list, a different system, and a different motivation. You might have noticed that the notion of repayment is sort of at the heart of what Jesus says here. He's speaking to a culture with rigid social distinctions that are held in place by reciprocity, by exchanges of payment and repayment. It's not our culture, but I would be surprised if we can't each find something here that sounds a little bit close to home. In the Roman world, a meal invitation was not simply a casual opportunity to go and hang out with a friend. It was part of the way social relationships and distinctions were made and upheld. If you have the resources to invite 15 or 20 people to your home for a banquet, you might invite them to be generous, yes, but also because you expect something in return. From the wealthy ones, you might expect a similar invitation in the future, an opportunity to see and be seen with other VIPs. From the less wealthy, you might expect loyalty in local disputes, perhaps support in a political matter, the sorts of things that would reinforce or maybe even elevate your position in society. Your guests are then indebted to you in some way. You expect to be paid back. That's how life worked in the first century. That's how you made your guest list for a meal. And Jesus is ripping those plans to shreds. Don't invite people who can reciprocate your generosity, he says. Invite people who can't. Forget the whole payment-repayment business that you know. 
because there's a better sort of repayment to be found. Like I said, it's not our culture. But are those sorts of calculations really all that foreign? The tallying up of what we have to gain? The concern with what others will think of us? The search for ways to climb the social ladder? The striving to be admired and held in high esteem? It's there in our schools, in our workplaces, in our churches, in our communities. I imagine most of us don't have to look far to find something that we recognize in all the counting and tallying and striving on display in the meal that Jesus attends. Forget all of it, Jesus tells his guests, who I now picture as a bit shocked and confused because there's a better sort of repayment to be found. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, he says. And that does sound like language about the distant future, a time when the kingdom of God will be fulfilled and all will be set right. But I have to think there's another sort of repayment and reward as well, one that's far more immediate. Because really, wouldn't it feel good to set aside all the counting and tallying and striving? Wouldn't it be liberating to forget what others think and simply be generous? Wouldn't it be reward enough to leave behind the old, rigid, ladder-climbing system for the freedom to simply bless others? This past week, you've probably seen in the news that the government of my country is going to forgive student loan debt for millions of people. This sort of debt cripples many young people for years, decades even, as they struggle to find their place in the workforce. This loan forgiveness is big news. And while I'm not proud of this, there was a part of me that had a rather selfish reaction at first. Well, shoot, I said to myself, I wish this had happened about 12 years ago <laughs> when I was starting out and dragging a load of educational debt behind me. I had that initial selfish knee-jerk reaction. But then I thought, isn't this actually the kind of world I want to live in? One where debts are forgiven. One governed not simply by payment and repayment, but by grace. One where I can think about more than only what's good for me personally. One where I can simply be happy for the good fortune of another. Jesus envisions a different sort of gathering and a different sort of world, beyond preoccupations with status and reciprocity, where there is a place for everybody at the table. And we have a glimpse of that world right here, at a table where no distinctions are drawn, where there is plenty to go around, where everyone is invited by Jesus, our host. We come again to sing that world, to long for that world, to taste that world, so that we might go out and live it. Friends, there is grace for all in Jesus' presence. And isn't that repayment enough? Amen.